Hello, and welcome to The Search. I'm Shahe Jurgen. This is Biblical History, the story of God's work through the ages. Lesson 13, Apostles and the New Covenant. Jesus of Nazareth came into the world to redeem it. He lived a sinless life, announced himself as the fulfillment of the hope of Israel as revealed aforetime by the prophets, worked many incredible miracles to confirm his message, and called upon Israel to follow him as their anointed king. Tragically, most of his fellow Jews rejected him, but God anticipated this eventuality. When the Lord's enemies thought they were achieving a victory by having Jesus crucified, God was actually lifting up his son on the cross to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. The ultimate victory and vindication of Jesus the Messiah came three days after his death, when his body was resurrected and transformed, and he walked out of his tomb in glory. He appeared to many of his followers over a period of 40 days. Then he was taken up in the glory cloud of God's presence and was seated at the Father's right hand. From heaven, Jesus reigns over all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he told his apostles just before his ascension. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, 18-20. These words are often referred to as the Great Commission, and they were carried out for the very first time in Acts chapter 2. The overarching theme of the book of Acts is the kingdom of God. The kingdom is Christ's reign and rule. It denotes all that's under his authority. Acts 2 records its inauguration on earth when Peter and his companions proclaimed, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, Acts 2.36. Those who were receptive to Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. These new followers of Christ devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They worshiped God and showed great affection and hospitality to one another, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, Acts 2, verses 41 to 47. Now, there are some important questions to be asked about the day of Pentecost. Like, why were Peter and his companions given the authority to inaugurate the kingdom? Why were these men called apostles and why did the early Christians devote themselves to their instructions? Just what's so special about the apostles? The verb form of apostle means to send. Apostles were men who were sent out to fulfill a mission or deliver an important message. Luke records how one day Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Luke 6, verses 12 and 13. Now, Jesus had many followers, but he selected them for himself just 12 men to be his specially designated messengers and representatives. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Mark 3, 14 and 15. The gospel accounts include lists which document the names of the twelve. 
Judas, of course, eventually betrayed Jesus, and because of his transgression, uh, the remaining 11 nominated his replacement. This is the only occurrence we ever see this happening. Uh, When the apostle James died, for example, in Acts chapter 12, he wasn't replaced. The replacement of Judas had to meet certain qualifications. He had to have been a follower of Jesus, but most importantly, according to Peter, a witness with us of his resurrection, Acts 1.22. Now, this is significant because it undergirds one of the apostles' primary functions. Jesus told them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1 verse 8. These men had to personally testify that they had seen the risen Lord as they went out proclaiming the gospel. The apostle Paul said that he was the very last person to see Jesus in his resurrection body. Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. And that's how Paul could be an apostle, but he also notes that his entry into the apostolic order was abnormal. Another function unique to the apostles was their ability to impart miraculous powers. The advent of Messiah's reign enabled all kinds of people to receive power from the Holy Spirit. But the apostles had a gift no other disciples possessed. They could lay hands on Christians and give them spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts were special, miraculous abilities that the early Christians needed to jumpstart the work of the church in its infancy. When new believers were baptized, the apostles would often lay hands on them and pass along some of these gifts. Peter and John did this with the Samaritan Christians in Acts 8, and the apostle Paul did this when he laid hands on 12 Christians in the city of Ephesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, Acts 19, verse 6. Remember that tongue speaking in the Bible always refers to the ability to speak a language one had never studied or learned. It was one of many miraculous signs given to the early church to corroborate and verify the message they preached about Jesus the Messiah. The work of the apostles cannot be understated. They were Christ's ambassadors. They were given special authority to reveal the will of heaven. They were chosen by Jesus himself to represent him. They worked amazing miracles and inaugurated the reign of King Jesus on the earth. This is why the early Christians dedicated themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Consider how Paul describes their important work to his Gentile audience. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. Of course, a foundation is only laid once. There's no need for living apostles today because their function was for the establishment of the church. The revelatory work of the apostles continues today through their writings, Which brings us to another important topic, and that is the Christian scriptures. The four gospel accounts were written to document the life and work of Christ. As the Apostle John states, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, John 20 verse 31. 
The book of Acts was written to document the establishment and incredible growth of the kingdom of God. It also gives us snapshots of church life, of the work of the Holy Spirit in the community of Christ, the preaching of the apostles, so on and so forth. But what about the rest of the New Testament? Well, every book after Acts, from Romans to Revelation, is a letter or an epistle. These letters were written by the apostles and prophets to singular congregations, like the church at Corinth, to a group of congregations in a regional area, like the churches in Galatia or the seven churches of Asia, uh, written to disparate Christians, like the 12 tribes scattered among the nations to whom James is addressed, or sometimes to individual Christians, like Timothy, Titus, Philemon, or the second and third epistles of John. Every New Testament letter was occasional, meaning it was written because of specific circumstances which were occurring in the community who received it. For example, Colossians was written to combat a particular false doctrine which was circulating in that region, the Lycus River Valley. First Peter was written to encourage Christians in Asia Minor who were enduring persecution. Hebrews was written to admonish Jewish followers of Christ not to abandon Jesus and return to the Mosaic Covenant. However, even though these letters were all occasional, they carried the immense weight of divine authority. Jesus promised to send the Spirit of truth to remind the apostles of all he taught them so that they could instruct others. You can read about this in John 14, verses 25 and 26, and John 16, verses 12 and 13. Jesus told Peter and the apostles that whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, Matthew 16, 19. Peter even wrote, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, 2 Peter 1, 3. And Paul said that by reading his letters, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Ephesians 3, verses 4 and 5. Now, how was all of this divine revelation made known to the masses? Of course, initially through the preaching of the apostles but eventually and ultimately through their writings, which are called Scripture. Peter described Paul's writings in this way. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. The word scripture was a common term used to refer to sacred writings that carried the authority of God himself. Concerning the old scriptures, Paul wrote, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Thus, the four gospel accounts, the book of Acts, 
and the collection of apostolic writings in the epistles constitutes the will of Christ for his people. Now, it's vitally important that when the New Testament is read and studied, one considers the message of the whole Bible. The New Testament can't be fully understood without the foundational truths of the Old Covenant Scripture collection or the Old Testament. The transition from the Old Testament as the primary guiding light for God's people to the New Testament is, of course, paralleled with the transition from the Old Covenant to the new. In fact, that's just what the word testament means. The old covenant was inaugurated by Moses and the new covenant was inaugurated by Jesus and revealed by the apostles. We've already noted in our previous lessons how Christ's death made the forgiveness of sins possible and how Messiah's kingdom came to the earth on the day of Pentecost. But let's talk now about a third benefit of the death of Jesus. And that has to do with the ratification of the new covenant. Way back in lesson three, when we talked about the Exodus and the old covenant, we learned that a covenant is a binding arrangement between two parties, which outlines their relationship. When a man and woman come together as husband and wife, they enter into a covenant where the two commit to being faithful to one another for the rest of their lives. Likewise, God has entered into covenantal relationships with different individuals and groups. The old covenant was with Israel, but the prophet Jeremiah announced to the Jews that Babylon was coming as a result of their abandonment of that covenant. Yet, the old prophet also had a message of hope. He said after 70 years in exile, God would restore his people. The ultimate fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecies didn't occur simply when the Jews returned to Jerusalem because Jeremiah looked even beyond that to something spectacular yet to come. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. James E. Smith explains this prophecy from Jeremiah. Even though the Lord had been a faithful husband to Israel, yet she had broken the Sinai marriage covenant. Therefore, the united people of God would live under a new covenant in the days to come. The law would be written upon their hearts, not on tables of stone like the Ten Commandments. Men would respond to the divine will from inward rather than outward compulsion. Those with God's law upon their hearts would enter into a new relationship with him. Everyone under the new covenant would know the Lord personally as Savior, for they would have their sins forgiven by him. This basic knowledge of God would not need to be taught to those under the covenant because such knowledge would be essential to gaining admission to the new covenant Israel. 600 years before the birth of Christ, 
Jeremiah anticipated that Messiah's reign would usher in a new arrangement between God and his people. In that lesson, Exodus and the Old Covenant, we also noticed that biblical covenants tend to include several key elements, and the New Covenant is no exception. For example, covenants include terms or rules or parameters. God delivered the Ten Commandments at Sinai for Israel, but Jesus came with his own teachings. Jesus revealed many of the principles of the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. He laid out his expectations for his followers through his ministry, and the apostles continued to bind on earth what had been bound in heaven. Paul simply summarizes the instructions and expectations of the new covenant as the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21. Covenants also include a sacrifice, which brings the terms into effect. At Sinai, Moses coordinated all kinds of animal sacrifices, but the writer of Hebrews emphasizes that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The old system had animal sacrifices, but God set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10 verses 9 and 10. Covenants include fellowship meals. Now, this is a a special meal where the covenant partners eat together to represent their mutual communion. God invited Israel's representatives to approach him on Mount Sinai, where it says they saw the God of Israel and they ate and drank, Exodus 24, verses 10 and 11. The Lord's Supper is the covenant and fellowship meal for Christians. Jesus emphasized the significance of his body, his shed blood, and the new covenant when instituting the communion feast. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." Matthew 28, verses 26 through 28. Now notice especially how Jesus used the language of Jeremiah to talk about the new covenant. Jeremiah said that in the new covenant, God will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And Jesus said his blood of the covenant was going to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Covenants also include signs. A sign is a physical token of the covenant which reminds people of their relationship with God. The rainbow was the sign of God's covenant with Noah, and circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. For Israel, God said, observe the Sabbath. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. Exodus 31, 14 through 17. The sign of the new covenant is also part of the communion celebration. When Jesus took the communion cup, he said, this cup is, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, Luke twenty two twenty. The apostle Paul confirms this. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. The Lord's Supper is much more than a mere memorial. The loaf is Christ's body. The fruit of the vine is his blood, and the cup is the new covenant. The cup is the sign, the physical reminder seen by Christians every Sunday that they're part of God's new covenant system. Finally, 
covenants include promises, which typically follow the formula, I will be your God and you will be my people. Followers of Christ are added to his body, members of his church, citizens in his kingdom, stones attached to his holy temple and heirs of all the blessings and promises of God. As Paul summarized it, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. One of the most amazing aspects of the new covenant, as outlined by Jeremiah, is that it wouldn't be determined by birth. The system under Moses was for the physical nation of Israel who descended from Abraham, but participation in the new covenant is entirely a matter of personal choice. Additionally, the choice is available to every man and woman in the world because Gentiles can also be in God's family through Christ. The gospel is the means through which God is reclaiming the nations. This theme is very prevalent in Paul's writings, who called himself the apostle to the Gentiles. Therefore, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 13. This means that three overarching blessings have been made a reality because of Christ. The forgiveness of sins, the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth, and the ratification of the new covenant. Additionally, all three of these blessings are available to the entire world in keeping with God's ancient promise to Abraham. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12, verse 3. In Apostles and the New Covenant, we've learned some important truths. We've learned that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping deity who binds himself to all those who trust in him. We've learned that the apostles are Christ's official representatives who revealed the will of heaven for all Christians of all time. We've learned the New Testament is simply how to refer to the four gospel accounts, the book of Acts, and the letters written by the apostles and prophets of Christ. We've been reminded that a covenant is a special arrangement that God makes with his people. And now we've learned the new covenant was predicted by Jeremiah to include the forgiveness of sins, and it's available for all peoples on earth. Jesus is the perfect high priest who offered not an animal for our sins, but his own flesh on the cross. Jesus is the perfect heir of King David who sits on his throne over an eternal kingdom. Jesus is the perfect mediator who establishes a covenantal relationship between God and his people. Jesus has done everything for us. And in view of all that Christ has accomplished, the writer of Hebrews offers this admonition, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 22 and 23. What a blessing it is to be part of the new covenant family of God in Christ.